This is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. Today we have another guest, Australian entomologist Phelan Mamarakis. Hi, everyone. Normally what we do to start out is ask people sort of what their interests are in science and how they got started in science. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess I've always been interested in animals since I was little. So I knew I definitely wanted to have some sort of career with um, animals. I think when I was about in year three, um, not sure what the American equivalent is, um, but I was about 13, 12, uh, I learned about the word zoologist and how that could be a career where I could both do science and work with animals. Ever since then, I was like, that's what I want to be. Yeah, I never had a super deep interest in insects growing up. I think a lot of, just from my experience, um, a lot of people in my bachelor's class, including myself, went in wanting to study mammals or birds, things like that. And yeah, that's I went in there going, yeah, I want to study some sort of mammal, um, dingoes, wolves, things like that. And then we had one class where um, our resident beekeeper on campus. Uh, it was just sort of class about beekeeping. Uh, we looked at honeybees. We looked at, uh, in Australia, we have a native stingless bee, uh, Tetragonula. So uh, they make these incredible little spiral shaped hives and we can actually keep them in hive boxes. So we had a look at those and yeah, ever since that, I was just Bees are incredible. I want to I wanna study bees. Uh, and you know, from there, I just discovered how interesting insects were and speaking with entomologists. And yeah, just I'm obsessed with insects now. So it sort of grew from that. Yeah, because you mentioned zoology. I was like, I thought they normally mm. study vertebrates. So I didn't realize there was yeah. a lot of crossover between the two. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we have a ton of crossover in Australia. Um, I know our education is a little different. Um, so I did my bachelor's in zoology. So all my units were just on you know, three years worth of zoology units, most of which were vertebrate based, but we did a lot of cell biology. Uh, we also did you know, general biology, um, a bit of chemistry, which I hated. Sorry, people who study chemistry. Um, <laughs> We've had, just... um, I think two chemists. Yeah, and that's they were right. lovely. Yeah, but um, yeah, it's, just... it's they, you know, it's not as good as entom <laughs> it's not as good as entomology. I don't know. I, I no, just know no. I had a, a chemistry professor in my first year of college who told me, you know, maybe you're just not cut out for science. Ah, yeah. Well, I sure proved That's her wrong. Yeah, I've, well, I've had I've had a few professors like that, and ugh. so it's an awful thing to say to someone. Yeah, it's yeah. Well, I'm. Unless we want to get deep into sort of abusive academic culture, which we can, but well, could you talk more about your specific research history, particularly the cognitive stuff in bees yeah. that you've done? I was about to say, I'm yeah, picturing yeah. a lot of bee dancing, but I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think I've ever worked with uh, bee language, so the bee dancing, uh, it's incredibly hard to study. Apparently, you need like an observation hive a lot of mm. money and it's a lot of just sitting there and waiting for them to do their thing um, well it's also yeah, yeah my mm. very limited experience with sort of behavioral studies and in insects is that it's often mm. and this is <laughs> this is probably uncharitable but it seems like it's often either fairly simplified and that you're watching mm. very discreet obvious behaviors or kind of you got to get in like weirdly intuitively because it, it reaches a mm. level of complexity where it's hard to actually discreetly observe and explain. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, 
can get really complex or it could be simple as just sitting there and you know noting down how many times they eat or do this um yeah animal behavior is a bit tricky like that yeah um but yeah my my background yeah since i wanted to study mammals um a lot of my volunteer work in my undergrad my bachelor's i did a lot of stuff on mammals so um i've worked in looking at mange in wombats i've worked in a lot of animal behavior stuff to do with foxes and native rodents we have over here so we have uh, things like red tail fascagels uh, which are like little mice with these long beautiful long tails um, so I've done a lot of work with that. After that, I sort of helped with a lot of this emu research, uh, which was really fun. Loved working with emus. Uh, they're not insects, but they are very cool. I mean, they are noble veterans of the emu war. Yeah, yeah. Um, which makes it worse when you realize how dumb they are. They are a very <laughs> dumb animal. <laughs> so it, it hurts oh. that little extra more knowing that we lost that. <laughs> like, but yeah, um, after emus, yeah, that's when I sort of went fully into insects. So I've done a bit of research assistant work with um, uh, native moth species over here, amata moths. Um, I've done a bit of work at the moment. I'm doing a lot of work with uh, mountain canidids, uh, which are very, very, very cool species over here. That uh, the sort of wing case pops up and they have this beautiful blue and red display really really incredible so i'm doing work with that with uh dr kate umbers at the moment who um sort of a full circle moment because in my undergrad degree she was actually one of my insect professors so my invertebrate professor and yeah now i'm doing work in her lab for her so pretty much from there i've started to do all my master's thesis work with my honeybees uh, so my honeybee research is yeah, on cognitive processes, like I mentioned. So it's sort of fancy way of saying I just look at bee behavior. I sort of give them a little learning task for them to solve. And that tells us a lot about their intelligence, how smart they are, if they can figure out this task that this task that I showed them was usually only shown in humans pigeons and rats so huh. this is the first time it was shown in an insect very very cool well could you talk about that more in detail like what specific behaviors are we looking at and also how like how would you actually study that like what does your sort of research methodology look like sort of a lot of research that we're trying to do is find the limits of a honeybee uh, cognitive ability uh, which sounds like it would be relatively easy but honeybees are actually have been found to be incredibly smart and they are a very popular study species at the moment to use for these sorts of animal intelligence studies. Just because they have such a simple brain and they have such simple uh, cognitive process um, and system, so you would expect them to only be able to do really, really simple cognitive tasks, not, not any of the complex stuff that maybe a human or a mammal could do. Um, but they've been found time and time again to be able to do that, which is super incredible. My sort of research was let's throw another learning task that's only been shown in the pigeons, the rats, and the humans, and let's see if an insect can do it. So that task was, uh, had a very, very big name. Uh, it's called a delayed conditional discrimination task, which sounds really, really complex, but very, very simplified. It was giving bees an option. So three different options, a blue, a green, and a yellow. In this uh, scenario, the green would always be a very a neutral option, so water. So the bees didn't find it rewarding, but they didn't hate it. And then the blue or the yellow would either be a rewarding choice or we would call it a punishing choice, which just means it didn't taste nice. So uh, the reward would be sugar water and uh, punishment 
this case would be quinine. So quinine is like uh, is a solution that's extremely bitter. You find it in things like soda water and malaria medication. So it can make you really sick if you have too much of it. And for the bees, it just tastes really gross. So they don't really want to drink that. Um, yeah, so we had these two options that they had to really pick from, which was the yellow or the blue. And the way that they could figure out if blue was going to have their reward or the yellow was going to have their reward was they had to look for a contextual clue because between each trial that we did we switched it so it would be mean and one trial the blue would be the reward the next trial maybe yellow would be the reward so they had to sort of look around their surroundings and try to find additional information that they could use to solve this task. We sort of had this little uh we built this little testing chamber out of a lot of duct tape and glue and um cardboard. <laughs> To put them in uh which has worked really really great uh we just had to train them to actually fly into that box so that took about an hour to train the bees to go Wait, into that hold on a sec. you can train honeybees to do things oh yeah yeah they are very very fast at learning um so I would not have guessed yeah yeah uh our setup was sort of we had them in a massive flight cage which was essentially like a giant greenhouse for this experiment we needed free flying bees so we would just have a hive set up and we would just let our bees fly everywhere and then we would set up our little experimental box on the other side and we had to train the bees from the hive to fly into this little chamber uh, and we did that using q-tips actually essentially all we did was soak the q-tip the end of the little q-tip in really really strong like about 70 percent sugar solution so the bees really liked it and you'd just go over to a bee near the hive and touch the top of their heads and they would just sort of climb on and start drinking. And then we could carry them over to where our little experimental chamber was and slowly show them and train them how to enter and fly in um, and that they would get a reward. And then we'd let them go back to the hive. So um, image of touching a little bee on its little head and then mm -hmm. letting it just climb on is very cute. Yeah, yeah. They just just love them. They just just love sitting in this glass house, essentially, and just having them all fly around you and land on you. And um, a lot of them would come to sort of realize that when we were in the flight cage, they were going to get a reward. So they'd come over and sort of almost greet us and fly around us and scan us. So that was really cool. And they sort of hated when we would move around too much because they would actually start to use us as uh, as landmarks. So they, if we were standing somewhere, they could use us to figure out where to fly to get to the testing chamber. So if we moved around it, too much it would confuse them uh, which is very cute that is that is also very <laughs> cute people yeah. don't give insects enough credit for just being so cute they are they are um sometimes i'd get sometimes i'd get bees that would uh, land on my hand and try to i'd have like i might have had sugar water or something under my fingernails and they would start trying to put their little tongues under my fingernails to get the sugar they water got those was, weird little tongues yeah it's great I guess more to the research. So you train the bees and you have them choose between two tasks. Yep, yep. What are you trying to sort of figure out with this task? So if this task gets a lot to do with memory and being able to look around your environment and go, I don't know how to figure out this task. I need to look for additional information that is going to allow me to solve this which is what the bees were able to do. Um, yeah. So in this task, we had we did have that additional information, which was at the front of the chamber. We would have either a white door or a black door. So before they actually went into the testing chamber and they could make their 
selection, they had to memorize and go, okay, that was a white door, that was a black door. Uh, so that was the delayed aspect of our task. And then we would let them in and they would have to think back and go, was it a black or a white door? And what does that mean? So some bees would have a white door would mean that the blue was the reward and a black door would mean yellow was the reward. And then the other half of our bees had the opposite. They had to figure that out and they did it incredibly fast. We were very surprised. They learnt in about 10 tasks, so 10 trials, and after that, they would start to get it. What is the basis on which you can say definitively, the bees have figured this task out? Like, what does that look like? Just from observing it, the bees would sort of enter the chamber and they would start to have these little coloured artificial flowers and they would sort of hover around them in a circle and that's just them sort of scanning you can almost see them trying to make a decision. You know, when we would first let them in, they would just go to whatever color. And they would be like, I hate that or I like that. And they would just, yeah, just go to random colors. They had no idea what was going on. Once they did start to get it, you would see that they would either fly in and have a look at all the flowers and then land on the right one or just go straight to the right one towards the end. Mm. Like they just, towards the end, they just knew. Um, and we were getting up to 80% of the time. At that point, they were getting it right. Some species of bees are you social, and I guess my question, are the ones you are looking at? And if so, most of the other eusocial insects that I'm familiar with, tangentially, mostly mm -hmm. hanging out with people who study emergent complex phenomena, are ants, and I know individual ants are just, like, really not very bright. So I was wondering mm -hmm. if there was a particular reason why individual bees seem to have a fair amount of intelligence, whereas ants, the intelligence is all in the nest as a whole. The individual ants in the ant nest are, are, are pretty dumb. Not sure how it is with ants. Um, we had some people in, in the lab also studying ants, uh, cognitive stuff with ants. So I, I'm sure they would argue that ants are reasonably smart, but I mean, honeybees have been shown to be quite smart in this case. Um, yeah, the species I was working with were just European honeybees, so just your standard honeybee. They're obviously you know, the most famous example, uh, very eusocial. We don't have a ton of bee species we can really study in Australia. We're in a weird situation where we don't have any native bumblebee species. Um, the only bumblebees we have are invasive and they're in Tasmania and you're not allowed to work with them. Um, at all Why? in research uh, just because they are invasive and we sort of just want to kind of get rid of them um, in my study it would sort of require keeping them which we don't really want to do well it's interesting to me just as an interjection because mm. from a certain perspective honeybees are also invasive um, yeah, yeah and so that's just a fun little philosophical nugget of how we draw the boundaries around pest and invasive when it's something we like to use mm. versus something we don't yeah yeah absolutely just for the absolutely. just for the philosophy of science nerds in the audience <laughs> just something to ponder <laughs> something to think of that yeah yeah a lot of our species in australia are solitary uh, we actually don't know a ton about them either i think in australia we only have four scientists that are looking into the sort of taxonomy side of bees and only one of them at the moment is being paid to do that so it's really a massive issue in Australia um, describing our species and yeah the only other really used social species we could use for this study would be our stingless bees but 
they they're not really uh, used much in these sort of studies. So I'd be interested in the future to see if they'd be able to do sort of this study. Yeah. Um, I don't I, think they're quite as smart. <laughs> yeah. I want to interject briefly. Do you think mm -hmm. we should maybe talk about what it means, A, what it means to be eusocial, and then yeah. B, drawing a distinction between eusocial and solitary bees? Because I, I know about this because they yeah. gave me a master's in entomology. But... I think this is something that might surprise a lot of people that there is a distinction between sort of eusociality in oh, yeah. bees and then other bees. Yeah, yeah. Um, so for those of you who don't know, eusocial would be sort of, when you think of bee, that's the classic example would be a eusocial bee. So a, a hive, a colony where they have a queen, they have worker bees, and then they have the drones, so the male bees. Uh, they don't really do anything but breed. And then as opposed to a solitary bee, is very different. They don't really live in hives, uh, which is probably very unusual for a lot of people to know that a lot of bees just don't live in hives. They don't have queens. Uh, they just have the females and the males. So it's just sort of a typical um, breeding situation in that case. Um, an example over here would be really, really popular blue-banded bees are a solitary bee over here. You got some nice bees. We do have some nice bees. We do. We got a lot of nice insects. Mm. Yeah, Australia's really lucky. Why look at the limits of cognition specifically? It's a lot easier to sort of, you want to try to find that limit, to find that endpoint, and that we can sort of work backwards. That, that tells us also... A, lot about the evolution of intelligence and why we still don't really know why mammals for example humans especially why we have the huge big brains with a lot of neurons and all these really complex parts when a honeybee can seemingly do all these really really smart intelligent things humans can but they have such very very simple tiny tiny brains with uh, less than a million neurons, which is incredibly small in terms of um, when we're talking neurology. So yes, get, getting that limit um, would tell us a lot more than what bees can do. It reminds me a little bit of, I did my undergraduate degree as a double major in biology mm. and linguistics. And the linguistics mm. part was mostly an accident, but it was very interesting. And in linguistics and sort of structural linguistics, there is syntax, which is looking at how elements can be put together in statements and be grammatical mm. to the human brain. And so thinking about the limitations on B cognition here kind of reminds me of sort of the general theory that undergirds a lot of syntax, which is the idea that there is an infrastructure for language inside the human brain. And a lot of syntactical research is looking at what is the very limit of what parses as grammatical in human statements and in human language. And that sort of tells you, because then you can sort of reflect backwards and say, well, this is where ungrammatical begins. Mm -hmm. So this is the thing that is not coded into the human brain. And then all of these yeah. other things are variations on what it... Yeah, 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 very, yeah. It's it's so much easier to work when you have that sort of limit as opposed to just sort of blindly being like, oh, can they, they can do this, they can do this, we can do this, you know? Having that limit really helps. Yeah, and then I think a secondary question is why study B-cognition at all? Very, very good question. Um, I ask myself this all the time. <laughs> Listen, 
I am in a graduate program for history and philosophy of biological systematics and taxonomy. Nobody who has ever <laughs> been on or will come on this podcast has more of a constant existential question of why why am I doing this? So you're fine. Yep, it happens. I think the agricultural pest control people are in pretty firm standing. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But I, maybe I only them. Funding too. Yeah. <laughs> maybe only them. Uh, yeah. I'm but... not bitter, but I am a. I am a, <laughs> just, just a little. The crisis of all the taxonomists dying is mm. not wrong. <laughs> it's not a hundred percent correct, but it's not a hundred percent incorrect either. Uh, it's it's yeah. It's a it's an issue. It's an issue. A lot of big scientists have been discussing it recently. Because um, yeah. this is I, this I, is I, a pod. Yeah, mm, this is a podcast I, about science and yeah. not about the nightmare of academic funding. No, <laughs> although no. it is secretly about the nightmare of academic funding also um but only secretly but yeah you didn't actually get you didn't actually get an opportunity to answer the actual question right right so why i study bees in in terms of uh cognition and intelligence being able to study a honeybee and its intelligence reveals a lot about well we, we still can't really answer what intelligence is. It's still something that's argued about. But in terms of cognitive, uh, cognitive processes, it tells us a lot about why do mammals have these complex brains compared to uh, simple insect brains? Are insects as lesser and basic than we've thought? Or are they actually just as complex as what a mammal would be? We just sort of been underselling them. Just tells us a lot about how these complex cognitive processes don't need complex solutions to solve them. They can have a very relatively simple brain, very limited neurons be able to sort of solve these really complex tasks, which is very interesting. Yeah. Well, again, for the philosophy of science nerds in the audience, mm. I think it would be interesting to specifically define what we mean when we say simple and complex in this context. Uh, simple cognitive processes are things that pretty much most animals are able to do things like uh, habitation. So it, a good example would be like when you're talking to someone, you're able to sort of block out all the other stimuli that's happening to you so you can focus on what that person is saying. I know not everyone can do that, but that would be an example in an animal as opposed to a complex ability it would be something like uh, contextual learning or associative learning, having really good long-term memory, understanding directional concepts like up or down or left or right, the concepts of bigger and lesser than. These are all things that bees are, have been able to do. So you're working in a lab, an orthoptera lab right now. What are you trying to do in the future? Like what are sort of ideal next steps for you? Ideally would be a PhD. Um, it's sort of the worst time to sort of be trying to go for one at the moment. I have no idea, no idea what you're talking about. Nothing going on right now that would make that difficult. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, I don't know. It's, I don't know why it's so hard to get one at the moment. Um, Who knows? Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's awful. I mean, it was bad before. It was, it was really awful before and it's just a lot worse now. Yeah. Well, so do you want to continue studying cognition in bees or is there something else that you would like to move on to? Um, yeah, yeah. Ideally, I'd like to keep going with bees, especially with um, cognition and animal behavior. Um, I 
love to do stuff with native bees. Uh, there's not a lot that we know about them at the moment, so I'd love to, I don't know, even if it's just animal behavior, just um, have a look at some native bees, see how they differ with, you know, our, our honeybees. Uh, would be super interesting. I'm not sure how cognitive uh, experiments would work with a lot of them since um, we, we don't really know how to keep them in a sort of lab setting. Well, there's but... actually, there was something that I wanted to bring up earlier and then I distracted myself. But <laughs> one thing you said was interesting to me is um, that after 30 trials, the bees would just sort of stop and go back to the hive. Yeah. And this is interesting to me because, and I don't want to dunk on vegans because I know many vegans and I love them and I treasure them and I respect them. But a common argument against eating honey is the idea that you're still sort of exploiting and mistreating bees. But this has always been kind of a wild argument to me because unless you are hurting the bees in a way that is against your own self-interest, you can't really, like you can't coerce bees to do things. Uh, no, I, I don't think people who, who say that or have that opinion realize that the bees can leave, like, and yeah. they do. If you don't take care of them in the hive box, if you, um, you know, you don't give them enough frames, you don't, like, they, they just overflow with honey, they're just gonna leave. <laughs> they're just gonna find somewhere better. They're just gonna peace out. Yeah, yeah, they, they will literally just peace out and you will have to go find them before someone calls an exterminator and gets your bees killed. So yeah, like, you can't make a bee do anything. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, sometimes I wish we could have in these experiments. Um, some bees were just awful to work with, but yeah, they, they, yeah. they're animals, they want to do what they want. <laughs> well, it's also because, like, a lot of animal behavior, historically, if not still contemporaneously, has been stymied by um, mm. the reality that a lot of animals just act, for lack of a better word, unnaturally when they're held in captivity. Yeah. And so it's sort of interesting, is that a criticism that often gets leveled against like bee behavior research? Or is it because they have such relative freedom of movement that it, it's not as much of a concern? Um, I guess it would depend what sort of experiments you're doing with ours. This learning task is sort of something they're never going to naturally encounter, uh, mm. which was sort of the point in terms of our learning task was that we wanted to give them something they would have never encountered before. I think there have been similar cognitive studies where they've looked at bee behavior, not, not in the way that I have in a flight cage, in a very artificial way, very lab setting way. Uh, they've looked at it more like when they forage and yeah, they're still able to do a lot of these cognitive tasks, which are, which is very cool. Um, I'm not sure how much being in a lab versus not would affect them, considering they are pretty much domesticated at this point. Well, that's another question. Is is there ever a suggestion that bees are, like honeybees specifically, are mm. relatively unusual cognitively because they have been domesticated in a way that almost no other arthropods have been? Like a, re a really good question is I've often been like, well, you know, they're domesticated. Maybe they're this smart because of humans, but... We, um, we don't do it in Australia, in, in Sydney, but uh, we, my lab, a few people in my lab work over in the US, so they work in the UK, and over there you're allowed to obviously use bumblebees in these experiments. Mm. So um, a lot of bumblebees too have been shown to do all these same, really similar cognitive stuff. Okay, really dumb question. Are bumblebees solitary or eusocial or communal? I don't think all of them 
are your social, but a lot of them are social species. Yeah, the, the ones um, I think that people that I've worked with uh, work with are you social species, I'm pretty sure. Don't know a ton about bumblebees. Forgive me as someone who hasn't really seen one. That's fascinating. The idea that you wouldn't mm. have seen a bumblebee. It's not that exciting. You can kind of, if they're on a flower, you can like reach out and kind of pet them sometimes. And that's fun. I mean, I mean, they're cute, they're cute, but... Yeah, and they do tend to bumble into things, so the name is very accurate. It's kind of endearing. They do bumble, and they are bees. <laughs> they are indeed bumblebees. Is there anything else that you would like to communicate about insects or science or insects and science? I don't know, I just... When we, when we think about animals, most kids, most people are going to not say an insect, um, despite the fact that majority of the animals on Earth are insects. Um, so that's really upsetting to me because we have so many amazing species, so many really interesting, not, not even insects, just interesting inverts and amphipods that people know nothing about because um, we're just so focused on mammals, which I guess makes sense because we are mammals and they're cute and they're cuddly, but insects can be cute and cuddly too. Yeah. I was about so, to say, have you ever seen a jumping spider? Yeah. They're yeah, adorable. I, um, well, they're not insects, they're arachnids, but same principle. Yeah. You also can't cuddle them because you would kill them. Well, They're... yeah. True. But like, you can try to cuddle a tarantula. It might not go well, but you could do it. But a jumping spider, you'll crush that little guy. Yeah. Just crush him. They're very tiny. Yeah. Um, yeah. Someone in my, uh, one of the professors in my undergrad, he was one of the researchers that discovers new little jumping spiders in Australia. Um, so that was very cool. We got to see some. One thing that we've done unreliably in previous episodes, but I would like to do more, is asking people to weigh in week to week on like one of our common questions. Okay, so if you were, let's say you're about to die, mm -hmm. imagine it. I mean, don't imagine too hard because then you might sink into sort of existential dread. Although Australia is doing really well with the pandemic right now. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're pretty, pretty good. We are... <laughs> We are not. So let's imagine you're about to die and it's in the future. You've lived a nice long life. You're like 100 years old, but like a spry 100. So you still have all your faculties. Your body is about to fail, but you can take your brain and put it inside of a robot container. Mm -hmm. Would you do it? I, don't know. I feel like at 100, I'm like in my mid 20s and I'm sort of already over, like, over everything. <laughs> So I feel like at 100, I'm just going to be like, yeah, kind of ready to go. But, at the but on the other time, hand, yeah, the robot I mean, like, body, what, though. Yeah, what sort of, like, I could have anybody? That, that's yes. Pretty cool. That's pretty cool. Oh, I could be tall. Yeah. Okay, you know. related question. You're about to die, mm -hmm. but you can upload your consciousness, but not your physical brain, and have it like be a computer system. How does that treat you? That's honestly ideal. Not to be a trans stereotype, but like having a body, a bit overrated. We specifically talked about this in an earlier episode. So like mm. you're being a stereotype. We're also stereotypes. Yep. Tessa, yep. Yeah. Does it tell Phelan, tell another of our guests your um, retirement oh, yeah. plan. So this is my wife and I's long-term retirement plan is that we're going to upload our consciousness, mm. preferably in a way that um, preserves con continuity of consciousness because otherwise I feel like it's just making a Xerox of yourself. Anyways, upload our consciousness into uh, like a digital format and then 
install it on mm. an interstellar probe and spend the rest of eternity exploring the universe. That is extremely gay and extremely romantic, and I love that. that is I great. wouldn't do it. Yeah, I wouldn't do it, though, because I'm very scared of space. Yeah, but you, you'd be dead. Well, you're not wrong. I mean, Tessa's whole situation is, we had a whole conversation about, like, if there's no continuity of consciousness, are you actually still yourself? And we came down on, no, you're like a weird copy, but it's not continuous awareness. Mm. But instead of being put in a space probe, I would like to be put into kind of like a weird robot insect body and just like hang out learning about insects more intimately than humans can because we got these big jumbo bodies that are clumsy and weird oh yeah yeah i'd love that like a robot bee would be ideal well i was thinking more robot mantis but that's also valid yeah i know space space is scary there's so many movies about how scary space is there's so much stuff out there Every time I watch Alien, I get a bit more scared about space, so... Well, Godspeed to Tessa and her wife. Going into space so that the rest of us don't have to. Hey, someone's gotta do it. Phelan, thank you very much for coming on the pod. No worries. Thank you for having me. Uh, if people want to find you online, where should they look? That's a good question. Uh, preferably, don't look for me at all. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> no, if you, if you want to know more about my research and stuff like that, um, I'm on Twitter with just my name. So uh, that's just at... Faye, so F-A-E, and then my last name, which is incredibly long, which is M-A-U-R. You don't have to spell it, because okay. it'll be in the description. I am on Twitter at Cockroach Arles and Tessa. I am on Twitter at Spacermace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E. The podcast is on Twitter at A-S-A-B pod, or at our website, where we have transcripts for every episode, at asabpodcast.com. And until next time, keep on sciencing.